Film, the official IU Cinema podcast. My name is David Carter, and I am here to introduce a very special episode of A Place for Film slash Physical Media Isn't Dead, It Just Smells Funny. About two weeks ago, I had the honor and pleasure of sitting down with a one Miss Drusilla Adeline, aka Sister Hyde, as you may know her from her website and social media credentials. She uh, is a Hoosier, an Indiana native, and she is actually back for the holidays. And I decided to finally jump at the opportunity to have her sit down and talk about her work as a graphic designer and artist and her beginnings as someone who didn't have a very traditional background in art. And I decided to do this all at the IU Cinema. So what you will be hearing is an episode recorded at the IU Cinema so the acoustics probably sound a little roomy, but I thought it would be nice uh, because she was only in town for the day to give her the red carpet, show her the red seats, the red curtains, or I guess crimson carpet, crimson seat, crimson curtain. And I had an absolute blast and a ball. We got to hang out after this recording. And, you know, plans withstanding, uh, we should be going to see uh, The Matrix Resurrections tonight together along with some other friends. So it's nice uh, making new friends in person when you've been uh, friends on the internet for so long. Yeah, I think you guys will enjoy this interview. We get a lot into her background and influences. And uh, we also talk about Fun City Edition's most recent release, Radio On, which uh, I announced it later in the episode, but we'll announce here that, yes, Cicada Cinema will be playing this in town at some point in January. Uh, so please keep an eye out for that and your eyes glued to Cicada Cinema's social media feed. I find this very relevant and non-tangential to the Ice Cinema because we played uh, Kings of the Road, the Vim Vendors movie, uh, not long ago as one of John Vickers' departing films. And it has been pointed out to me by someone who's much more immersed in the Road trilogy that Vim Vendors put out that Radio On is pretty much the fourth Road a trilogy movie, uh, and it's not just because it was shot by Martin Schaefer, Vim Vendor's camera operator. There's a spoken line of dialogue that ties those films together. But besides that, please enjoy this interview. I had a great time doing it. I hope to get her back on the podcast soon. And uh, I hope everyone enjoys watching The Matrix Resurrections either in the safety and comfort of their own home or fully vaccinated, boosted up, double, triple masked up at a theater to get the theatrical experience uh it's a it's a holiday here at the carter household but please enjoy this episode with drusilla adeline getting to know you getting to know all about you getting to like you i'm drusilla adeline uh i design under the name sister hyde and i'm a graphic designer and occasional filmmaker Oh my God. Thank you so much for being here, Drusilla, all the way from LA to New York and then back to uh, the big city of Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> my roots, back to Indy. Uh, we are, just to paint a visual picture for the audience, we are recording on the stage of the IU Cinema. Drusilla, the last time you were here, John Waters was on the stage, correct? Yeah. Six years ago, I took a mega bus down from Chicago <laughs> down to Bloomington to go see John Waters speak. And then I think it was a screening of Female Trouble after. And that was one of the best days of my life. It was an amazing, amazing day. That was like an incredible show because, one, it was like technically sold out. So it was like a packed crowd of people who like really wanted to be here. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, two, it's the most socially awkward I've been in front of a director ever in my entire life because he asked if I wanted to take a picture and I said no please just sign the book because I was too nervous to take a picture with him oh I absolutely asked for a picture and I I asked him to sign my 80s criterion laser disc of polyester which is a gorgeous but he just as he was signing it he was like where the f did you get this and I was like don't ask me don't ask me that but and I also vividly remember his recommendation to see Carol that mm -hmm. night in which he said it was the most transgressive and erotic film of the year because it was so closeted oh and my so God. <laughs> repressed and he's right God, John has such a big brain we got to get him back here but thank you for being on here this is like a dream come true I've been stalking you on Twitter for uh, many years it's my pleasure as you know a born Hoosier not a Mm -hmm. college alum Hoosier. Eh, uh, close enough. Yeah, I'm a Hoosier once over, not twice over. It pleases me greatly that there is such a great film culture in Indiana, and I love doing whatever I can to continue to be a part of that. 
So oh. we love you for it. So reason I have you here is because our mutual friend, Jonathan Hertzberg, put us in touch with each other. And obviously, we're going to talk about Radio On uh, in that most recent release because you did the beautiful cover art for that. But honestly, I just wanted to talk to you about like your whole journey becoming an artist and graphic designer because I still think back to a day on Twitter where they, there was a like artist visibility day. I don't know what type of artist visibility day it that's, was. That's, that's like every other Tuesday. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, remember you had mentioned, it was like near and dear to my heart, which was that you, you had said something along the lines of until you had gotten involved with like designing things digitally, you had always had this misconception or this like mental block where people were always like spinning the myth that like you had to be able to illustrate or paint or whatever to be an artist or like draw with like pencil and paper. And so I had always been an impression that most artists like start like a very young age and like go from there. So I'm just kind of curious about your journey based on that one statement. Like, did you have a traditional art upbringing? Did you start later in life? Uh, what did, you know, what did digital tools bring for you for that? I mean, I had no art education almost at all. And that's that, that entire concept of you need to have these backgrounds and these tools and do these things to be an artist is a thought that I still grapple with most days. And it's something that I keep having to beat back out of my brain and remind myself, no, everyone who creates anything, period, is an artist, especially if it's something that's of value and substance. You don't have to do something one way or follow one path. And the path that led me to where I am is circuitous at best. So I didn't have any art training whatsoever other than like a couple art classes in elementary school here in Indy. Never very good. Was very self-conscious about that. Because I liked art. I like art. I wanted to draw. Drawing looks fun and cool. And you can just make stuff up. And I couldn't do it. I was very, very bad at it. It was stick figures and <laughs> suns with little rays coming out in a smiley face. Hey, Don Hertzfeld has made a whole career out of stick figures. So there's He's nothing wrong with that. He's a genius at it. <laughs> and so I ended up becoming a musician, playing bass and guitar in a lot of bands. You know, growing my love of cinema when I was like 13 or something like that. Really falling in love with international film and thinking like, oh, maybe I could do something like that. Maybe I could make movies. That's not like drawing. That's you You set a camera up and you find a composition and then you get actors and do all that. That's collaborative. That's leaning on, you know, other people's strengths to hide your own insecurities and using your strengths to hide other people's insecurities. And that's a collaborative art. That sounds like a thing I could do, much like music. Wonderful. But throughout doing all of that, we still needed like band flyers. Or we still needed, you know, a poster to submit with a movie to a festival. And so I would just make tiny little things on my computer really fast without really thinking about it. On, like, Pick Monkey or, like, <laughs> on the school's Photoshop <laughs> at North Central High School here in Indianapolis. Ended up going to college in Chicago for film. And then that led me out to L.A. for a little bit. And I was working as a script intern for a major studio that was going nowhere for me at least, and then I landed ass backwards at a startup that needed editors, and I was like, I can edit, I like doing that, perfect. And as I was working there, I realized that they didn't have a designer whatsoever working on their company brand, working on these films that they were putting out, or working on any of the marketing and things like that. So I was just like, these could all look better. And I know Photoshop well enough since, you know, messing around in high school, I'll just tweak these and make these better. And then quickly my bosses realized, Drew's doing that. Uh, let's promote her. So I ended up being an in-house designer there for a couple of years. And then I realized that, like, I enjoy doing this. I'm learning on the job very much. But I feel like I could do things more than just these bad indie movies. I feel like I could maybe do a poster for something or maybe, you know, God forbid a home video release would be so cool to do, but I mean, maybe someday. <laughs> and so I started doing self-initiated work to kind of show myself as much as anyone else what I could do with bigger, better titles. And so inspired by my friend Scott Saslow, I spent a year coming up with original weird little things on my Instagram account, one poster, a day for a year, I did 365 posters, actually more Jeez. than I did some doubles across my Instagram account. And then I ended up getting a Twitter account eventually because I'd avoided that for years to promote all that stuff. And it caught on well. 
I was getting commissions from indie filmmakers that I knew to do posters for their shorts or for their new features. And then after that first year wrapped, not long after, I had a portfolio of over 300 plus pieces of self-initiated or commissioned work. And then five plus hundred pieces from the job I'd been working at. And I was able to get some attention, freelance work from small agencies in Los Angeles. So I quit my job, went freelance, and have kind of been moving and evolving ever since. And that first year that I went freelance, some of my first clients ended up being some of my biggest and most consistent clients. I ended up in that first year working for Kino Lorber. I ended up working for a couple uh, big agencies that I still work with. And then the last job of that year, of that first year, was to work with the Criterion Collection. And that was like the end all be all. That was the that Absolutely. was the top of the mountain. And I was like, I skipped too many steps. I how? <laughs> um, and that was to work on the Scorsese shorts set, which was a dream come true. And listen, if I was learning on the job at the beginning, that was like stepping up to bat and having to kind of balance that experimentation and learning with confidence and understanding to get something like that done and across in a way that I felt proud of. Um, and then since then, it's just been, I've been outrageously fortunate and gifted to, through the work that I've done, meet great people, become friends with other great artists that have much more standard backgrounds than I do, and to work with amazing, amazing clients like Criterion and Mondo and Fun City and Arrow, and larger agency work and with larger studios like that, working with Dark Sky Films out of Chicago, working with Vinegar Syndrome out of Connecticut, working with Severin back in LA. It's been an outrageous pleasure to work with all of these people and companies that I've looked up to and admired for so long. It's really, it's really odd. It's so nice listening to you speak because it feels like I feel like a little bit of vindication like <laughs> listening to it, only because like, I have no traditional background in film. I went to Jacob School of Music for music. I play mm -hmm. saxophone, sharing that like musical background, but like went to school for music, long story short, decided that being a professional musician wasn't for me, but I like to continue to play music. I essentially like fell backwards into film because of this place popping up like back in 2010. It was like a nice escape for like me and my friends to like find something to do mm -hmm. that was a different type of creative outlet that wasn't just like sitting in a practice room going over 251 chord progressions over and over and over playing again. Playing someone else's music. Playing someone else's music. Yeah. Like, and so like that communal experience helped a lot. And so me becoming like, I don't know what, what I am at this point, a film exhibitionist, a film writer, a podcaster, like, I don't know, I'm a millennial, so I freelance, is what I said, uh, is what yeah, I say. Gig economy. Yeah, yeah gig economy. Like, I was a, uh, uh, this year alone, I was a producer, a film programmer for the Heartland Film Festival. I love uh, Heartland. Yes, yeah. yeah, I was the third programmer for that this year. But, like, all that journey between, like, me becoming smitten with film all the way up until, you know, 11 years later, how long it's been. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been very much a, I have just learned how to do every single thing on the way. And I just acquired such a large portfolio of work that I think to it, it got to an extent that like people couldn't ignore it. And it just kind of sounds like you went through something very similar as far as like your discovery of like what your artistic skills could be and what your medium would be and you know, what you like to do and like, you know, getting all these like big connections, like I wouldn't be anything, not anything, but like I owe like a great debt to someone like John Vickers, the former director of the IE Cinema for putting me in contact with people like Jonathan and people at Criterion to like review their films. And now that's just become like a whole branch of things that I do is reviewing like Blu-ray releases, yeah. uh, which is, you know, led me back to you. But it, it, like, thank you so much for sharing that because I had just talked to a class, uh, like I was supposed to be giving a lecture on the five bloods at like a Spike Lee class, but what it kind of taught turned into in addition to a lecture on the five bloods, which a movie I love as well. There's a lot of people asking like, uh, how do you get involved with this? And we're on a university campus. And I think me, myself, even have the misconceptions like, well, I guess you have to like be an arts administrator or something, or you have to have been like a filmmaker, but like, you know, or had a creative writing degree. And like, none of that is true. What was really inspiring for me is that one of my final courses out through college out in LA 
was basically all they did was they had people in the industry come to a day in like blocks every single day to just talk at us, whether it was an editor or a casting agent or a producer or a director or a writer or an actor or like anyone involved in different levels of the process, pre-production, production, post-production, distribution, they would all come in and they would talk at us and they would all tell us their story of how they got into the industry. And the thing that really smacked me the most out of all of that was they all have a different story. Everyone got to where they are in different ways. The thing that's so amazing about film and about filmmaking as a medium, as an art, as a job, as a lifestyle, is that it's such a large art that requires so many people to bring it together that there are so many opportunities within so much around it. And it's very, very easy to find things that work and find yourself in that space. And just experimenting and trying and being, okay, I'm gonna be a PA today. I'm gonna see what that's like. I'm gonna talk to the ACs and I'm gonna talk to the grips and I'm gonna talk to the cast and see what they like and see what they do and talk to the art department. Okay, cool, that's, that's pretty good. And then I'm gonna go talk to the guys in distribution later at this company and I'm gonna see what that's like. Then I'm gonna go talk about this person in the theater and maybe like work with the theater a little bit and see what programming is like. And you're gonna find what works for you because there's it takes so much to imagine, plan, create, put together, and put out a film that it requires so many people and there's room for everyone in that chain. And anyone who tells you there isn't is a liar. <laughs> well, okay, so let's back it up and let's talk about how you even came to like f come to fall in love with film yourself. I came to this late. I was like 18 or 19 mm -hmm. when I like started getting into movies. I had listened to other interviews you did. You said you had a mother that influenced this and amongst other things. And just like, the reason I ask you about this is because it's rare to find people like you who have a reverence for film, no matter how high, medium brow or low brow. <laughs> it is, no, I, and I'm serious. Like you, like listening to you, like following you on Letterboxd or like, listening to you tweet about something that you like, you have just as much reverence, you know, for the late, great Lena Vertmuller as you do like, like an 80s comedy that everyone's seen like a billion times. Like, but you appreciate like the craft and the quality of it. I love Clue as much as I love Citizen Kane, as much as I love Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. One of the great titles. <laughs> like, I love giallo movies and splatter movies and zombie movies and comedy movies and vampire movies and erotic movies and I love surrealist films and yeah. So I, I just like movies and I like <laughs> movies that take you out of your life. So I have a wonderful mother who I love so much who when she was raising my older brother and I took umbrage, I'll say, with Disney films for routinely killing off the mother figure, especially in their animated movies. My mom didn't like that, didn't care for that, and, you know, justly so. Uh, and also, like, if she's gonna have to sit next to her kids watching a movie on the couch for half the day, she's gonna want to watch something that she wants to watch. So instead of growing up on a lot of animated content like that, we grew up on stuff that my mom liked when she was growing up. So, I mean, there's a lot of Abbott and Costello stuff when I was growing up, Marx Brothers, Muppet movies, Mel Brooks movies, Airplane, Top Gun, Clue, Murder by Death, The Producers, a lot of Jim Carrey comedies from the 90s, a lot of Peter Falk movies from the 70s, and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World is a really big one. And these are just like, that's what I thought movies were. Movies were these old black and white comedies with Cary Grant or with Abbott and Costello bumbling around or they were these 80s things or they were these 90s things and I could tell that like I was watching Animal House and the Blues Brothers when I was in like kindergarten I think oh my just God. because that's the stuff that my mom liked and my dad liked that too and he didn't give two shit about movies period but you got two kids the older of which is very 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 rowdy and always getting into trouble you gotta you know keep them in line somehow both my parents worked so I relate to the cable guy a little bit in that way, <laughs> uh, where it was almost a necessary evil. And so that's just something that I always grew up with. I always grew up with a wider palette of movies, I think, just in my house. We didn't own a lot of movies. It was just like we went to the library a lot, and that's what was playing on TV. 
But then when I was in middle school, I was in eighth grade, and I had a really strong group of friends, and we were all like the outsider weirdo kids, and we were all in bands and stuff. And I was coming into my sexuality, and I was like, great, this is a thing I can discuss with these friends and be <laughs> open about. And I tried to come out, and that was a mistake. And it went very, very, very poorly. And I lost all of my friends. I lost my girlfriend. I was out of my band. And I was in a very, very bad headspace. And my resolve and my, like, salvation was that, like, I would go to the Carmel Clay Public Library mm -hmm. uh, here in Indy, and I would go walk all the way to the Carmel Library after school. I would check out a stack of, like, eight to ten movies, and I would walk to the gas station nearby, pick up a Mountain Dew with some Slim Jims and some snacks and stuff like that. Uh, the Breakfast and of then, Champions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then walk back to my mom's condo or apartment or wherever we were living at the time. Uh, and then just, I would have those stack of movies and that's what I did. I would do my homework and get all that done. And then all of my other time was just spent playing guitar or writing or watching like a lot of movies. And so at that time, that's when I discovered... You know, I'd always heard about Quentin Tarantino or Kevin Smith or I'd always seen posters for Wes Anderson movies. I heard about Martin Scorsese and these things. Never gotten to watch them. So I started watching those things that I always heard about. And then those led me into, wow, a lot of these are starting with this Criterion logo. I should look up, especially these Wes Anderson movies, I should look up what that is. Oh, they've done some movies that I like a lot. They did Sid and Nancy. They did... Spinal Tap, they did Silence of the Lambs. Okay, I like those movies a lot. What else do they do that I might like? Oh, they did a Cary Grant movie I've never heard of called Charade. Let's go watch Charade this week. I can watch that with my mom or something like that. And then, all right, uh, they keep recommending this Bergman guy. I'll go check out one of his <laughs> movies. And then suddenly Bergman and Bunuel and Kurosawa and David Lynch and Fassbender and Lena Vertmuller and Dario Argento and... Luciano Visconti and Saijun Suzuki all started to like bleed in. And then by the time that I went to high school, finally got a good group of friends again, started a whole new band again. But at the same time, I was still like eating up and watching as many Truffaut and Godard and Anius Varda. And like, and this was before all of those Criterion titles ended up going on streaming. I mean, we didn't even like Netflix and Hulu were around. We didn't have those. We couldn't afford those. Oh, absolutely. I could not. afford to go to the library for free uh -huh. and rent as many movies as I wanted. I had them for a week and I could get as many as I could fit in my bag, basically, and just watch them ad nauseum. And the great thing about those Criterion movies was that you could go to their website, learn more about them, and then they would recommend three other movies. And you could easily spot them. Thankfully, my library had a bunch. And they all had tons of extras on the disc so you could learn more about like if you watched rules of the game and you thought it was not that good and you were like why is this important you could then watch an entire second disc full of <sighs> why this is a very important uh, movie yes. and then you watch it again uh and then you know get into Cronenberg and get into and so you know all of these were really 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 big and important things for me at that time and was very much was my salvation at a point that was really really dark and tough for me to the point that when I was back in a healthy place and I had friends and people again, that's what I did. That's what I, I watched movies because I would watch schlockier things with my friends to hang out with. We watched Dead Alive and we'd watch Uwe Boll movies and, you know, things stay up late and watch with your friends and then watch comfort 80s rom-coms and comedies and murder mysteries and stuff with like my family and my mom and stuff like that. And then in my spare time, I was watching, you know, Fellini and Antonioni and stuff like that. I love all of that. It just, it all sparks joy in some way, shape, or form in the back of my brain. It inspires me because it's fucking hard to make a movie. So it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to make a movie. I've made bad short films for a thing we call like the instant gratification film challenge. And even that, like a, I'm going to make something that's five minutes bad. I'm going to shoot it and cut it in like a three day period. Mm -hmm. Still hard. Yeah. Still so hard to do. And so like doing something in which you're actually like putting a lot of time, effort and passion into, that's why I've never crossed over into like actually wanting to make like an actual short film or a feature length film. It's just, it's, there's too much of yourself you have to give up for it. And so I admire people like you who actually go through with it. It's tough. And thankfully in... High school, I ended up transferring to North Central High School. 
and JEL for any Hoosiers out here, J Everett Light Career Center is really big and really important. You can bus in from like any high school in the state and they have, you know, paramedic courses and radio courses and uh, culinary courses, but they also have a film course. And that's where I learned, you know, actual filmmaking and they gave us DSLRs and we met other kids that wanted to do that. And, you know, some of my best friends that like, we're neighbors in, back in L.A. now. We met through there, and we still are making stuff together. You touched on something that's, like, really special to me and something I've been thinking about a lot just because I'm getting old, which is that period of film discovery when like every movie you watch even if like you really didn't like it it's still the best movie you've ever seen in your entire life it's new because it's new you don't know what's gonna happen next yeah and you've also never seen anything quite like yes like you obviously have like this innate you know cinematic language that all people have if you've seen the movies was like i know that there's editing and people act and there will Mm -hmm. be a score and a direct and there's a director making choices who is telling people what to do or you know whatever like whatever your basic uh, understanding is but then you watch something like the, your first David Cronenberg film and you're just like you're just allowed to do that like, I remember you- I was on video drama for the first time and I was like what the f- is happening you can't just <laughs> shoot cancer bullets into people what is this the first international film I ever saw because to backtrack a little bit I saw Inglorious Bastards in theaters mm-hmm. and I was like 13 or something. And I'd never seen a foreign film, but I was like, that movie was two and a half hours long. And it's like 70% German or French. Yes. I could easily watch an 80, 90 minute French film. Okay, fine. So I went to the library and I looked for anything with a foreign language tag on it. And I looked for posters that I'd seen before at the library from going there as a child that I always wanted to see. And I picked up three movies that had covers that I'd been familiar with and I wanted to see what those movies were knew nothing about them, but had avoided them because they were foreign language. And I was like, going to start with these three. And those movies were Eyes Without a Face, <laughs> The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, uh-huh. and Phantom of Liberty. So two Benwell uh-huh. films and a Franju. And I started with the Benwell movies. And those broke my brain in half. Yeah. And it's never been the same since. That's why Benwell is my god. I mean, like, <laughs> if you have only grown up on a steady diet of contemporary American cinema. Yes. And then you go back and you watch his most entry-level movie, Discreet John the Bourgeoisie. It will blow your brain in half. Absolutely. It is so brilliant. And not in, like, the really, like, obtrusive Kenneth Anger or um, Hodorowsky way, which, like, those movies are great and how they are, and, you know. But, like, Bunuel presents these movies as being a standard comedy or a standard melodrama. And then he very slowly, through dream logic, starts to pull the rug out from under you yeah. so that you feel comfortable, you feel set in, and then you don't know if you should be terrified or laughing. And through that, he makes some brilliant, brilliant you know, discoveries in those movies that are so impactful. And the things that he could do in 45-minute movies or 90-minute movies is so much more impactful to me than any, like, three-hour-long Spielberg or Christopher Nolan film. Like, it's insane. It's insane. It's so funny that you mentioned, like, your film, your gateway into film starter pack being that, because for me it was a friend, Brian, who's from California, specifically, Mm -hmm. like, the Bay Area. When he was leaving, we were roommates for a year and many other times in our lives, but, like, he was leaving, and he was the one who introduced me to the Criterion Collection. I still have, like, the vivid memory of going to... RIP Borders, uh, going to Borders, and him saying, uh, oh, like, they have some criterions here. And I was like, is that a word you just made up? <laughs> and then he was like, no, it's like this whole thing. It's like they only release good movies is like kind of the way he described it. <laughs> We're like 18. Uh, <laughs> and then the night before he left, he said, and we had just gotten a Netflix disc subscription too. The night before he left, he said, hey, I really want to show you Breathless, and I really want to show you Yojimbo. Oh, my God. And so we watched those back-to-back that is international film 101. Yeah, like back to back same night, which is why Akira Kurosawa is my god. And I've had this like love hate relationship with Truffaut. I'm uh, not Truffaut. With Godard. Uh, Godard my entire yeah. life. If you don't have a love hate relationship with Godard, you've never seen a Godard. That's true. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I would say, I don't know if I've met anyone who's like ride or die 
<laughs> for, yeah. ev- for everything. But it is like why Kurt Kurosawa was my god. And then the very next day he left and then he, it turns out he had like ordered in some like Netflix disc that, you know, like he was like, oh, just watch them and then return them when you're done. And that's La Dolce Vita in Brazil the very next day. And so I had this like two wow. day, this like two day period where I'm in this apartment by myself just watching like- Four of the most potent movies ever. The most like potent movies. And like- at this point, like Fellini and Gilliam, that's that's a the same double the bill. same day, which is why like Brazil was like one of my like that those four movies probably wired my brain in like a very particular way that I've like never been able like to get away it's from. It's December. I need to watch Brazil again for Christmas. Absolutely, <laughs> love conquers all version. Like I don't care. I just like love that movie. But like it's that like weird like clicking on in your brain that happens like once you've like you know I'd go see whatever out was new and like I was mm-hmm. seeing like. Academy Award movies and like we were still renting things from like Vulture Video, formerly Plan Nine Video in town, and like all the like places around things. But when you get that like shot in your arm of like that potent international art house like cinema, and you would take it like the the vaccine takes and like your antibodies it, start, it, it changes your life. <laughs> yeah, like completely changes your DNA. It like kind of opens up your and like I don't mean this to sound like too high sadity about this but like it kind of changes your worldview a little bit like it absolutely changed mine i mean i grew up in midwestern indiana and i you know didn't really know that much about politics growing up i knew green day was mad about something i just didn't really know (laughs) what Uh, and then you know got into punk music and you know was really listening to the clash and i was like i knew they were talking about political ideas and I knew they were talking about leftist ideas, but I didn't know what they were. I didn't know the actual events that they were talking about. And I didn't know, you know, all of these things. And so getting into the films of like Gio Pantacarvo and Costa Gavras through movies like Battle of Algiers and Z and Missing really opened my eyes to be, this is what's happening and what happened in the world. This is what the US government funded. These are just the flat-out effects. And yes, they, like, will edit them and paste them and score those movies like a thriller and, like, you know, in, like, a slightly Hitchcock mode, maybe. But Battle of Algiers feels like a documentary. And all those Costagavras movies are just very cleanly laying out very intense, very leftist political ideas, but from a very easy perspective of, like, here's this thing. Here's this thing that happens. Here's the fallout. That's how f- bad it is. <laughs> and you really, really, really kind of click in. And it's a, such a great gateway into understanding the world around you. And also, like, being a white suburban kid from center of Indiana. I remember watching Do the Right Thing for the first mm-hmm. time in, like, middle school or something like that. And for some reason, feeling like I had to hide it. Yeah, interesting. My context, my brother is a horde, vehement, 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 vehement racist. And it felt slightly scandalous to me. And But then watching that movie is such a celebration and such, like, it really, growing up in a very small, white, Midwestern town, to start watching Japanese cinema, start watching Indian cinema, to start watching even just African-American cinema in that part of Indiana feels almost like watching international cinema because it's so different from where you're growing up and from the like world that you're exposed to because of the socio-political reasons that have laid out these states in this way and because of the way that people are treating other people in where you're growing up. And it's it does a lot to open your mind to the world because it's people in the world telling their stories in the most relatable, visual and visceral ways possible. I mean, someone, I can't remember who, but a very famous film scholar described cinema as an empathy machine. Yes. And they're right. I absolutely agree. That, like, I got to experience that real time with, like, my closest friend, the same, you know, saxophone players I was talking about that we watch movies together. Like, watching, like, them, like, probably watching some, like, the first African-American films they had been, you know, because either were all of us were from the Midwest or, you know, like I said, one of them's from San Mateo, California, or whatever. Watching them watch Do the Right Thing, a movie I had seen many times up mm-hmm. to that point. Weirdly, yes, like, I guess that is an art house movie, I, but to me, that was just a movie. It's an 80s feel-good comedy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the same way that Moonstruck is. But seeing them, like, in real time, like, as my friendship 
developing with them like through cinema and obviously we're all studying like jazz which is like an African-American art form mm -hmm. like like and watching them like develop different types of things like get out of that like weird mid-aughts mindset about like yes. race and things like that like transitioning into like the 2010s and like cinema I think like being like a big part of that for them I don't know if they would and I don't say like they wouldn't admit it because they like are standoffish about it I don't think they would admit it because they probably wouldn't even realize they were ha it was happening and I was viewing it happening as like the outside like the person with that outside perspective it was really important to me too in terms of being a queer individual growing up like mo the, the movies that represented trans identity and queer identity when I was growing up were like Silence of the Lambs and Psycho, mm -hmm. yeah. and Ace Ventura. Oh, God. And these are Jesus. really, really, really bad depictions yeah. that instill so much shame in someone who doesn't even know that's what they're being instilled with. And then I remember renting my own private Idaho from the library, knowing nothing about it other than slightly based on Shakespeare, directed by Gus Van Zandt, I'd probably seen Drugstore Cowboy at that mm -hmm. point. Yeah. And it's got Keanu Reeves and Flea in it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> and I remember watching it and just being swept up in how beautiful River Phoenix was. Mm -hmm. And then the very second thing you see after a very expressionist opening is he's giving someone head. And then I was just like, oh, in a way that's, you know, kind of shocking to certain audiences, which, you know, it's from 94, really not that, or 92, or whatever. It's not that shocking anymore. But if that's some of your first, like, flat-out queer depictions of queer life from queer filmmakers and queer actors, it kind of hits you in a way that you're like, oh, I've never seen this before. Yeah. And then by the point that it gets to the campfire scene, which is so tender and beautiful and emotional, and the way that sex scenes are filmed in that movie as static tableau shots, where it's about the art and the beauty of human connection and they shoot heterosexual sex scenes the same way they shoot gay sex scenes the same way they shoot threesomes with Udo Kier God bless <laughs> um, it just really blew you know these really really repressed visions in my mind open entirely and then you know eventually discovering John Waters and Pedro Almodovar and films like Parting Glances and I Want What I Want and these really, really important queer and trans films that I was like, oh, okay, no, there's there's so much more to the world than just like what the Rocky Horror Picture Show tells you that there is. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I love Rocky Horror and I love things like that where, but growing up in the Midwest and only seeing queerness codified as a thing that you do at night and only for the weirdos mm -hmm. is great in a, in a way, but also... I really, really needed mundane queerness. Thank you for phrasing it that way. That's the one thing I think people gloss over like a need for in cinema, yeah. just in general. Like, I mean, just people are boring, people are exciting, people mm -hmm. are cool, people are lame. Like, it extends to every facet of our lives. Uh, it, it's just funny that we have to depict queerness as this thing where it's like a... Like, queerness isn't just every rave scene in a Matrix movie. Like, it's so much. But it also But is. it also is. I mean, the Matrix is great. the transest movies ever Oh, made I know. I mean, those are, reasons. those are, like, seminal movies. I mean, I me. remember yeah. growing up and wanting to see those because I had a thing for Keanu Reeves as a kid who didn't. And my parents were like, you're not going to understand those. And I was like, I'll try. And guess what? I understood those. It's, uh, look. miles an hour gonna drive past the stopping shop with the radio on I guess just given the amount of time we have because I could talk to you for a little actually we're gonna keep talking after this podcast wraps up I would like to talk to you about your work on radio on and working with Jonathan and doing the art for this and just like that movie in general like I just watched it for the first time a few weeks ago this this is the uh, kind of official announcement that I'll be playing it at Cicada Cinema pop-up cinema help run oh, in hell town yeah. Uh, yeah like that's why uh, I've been I'm talking so to Jonathan happy yeah I'm radio on is a movie that is so f good and has one of the greatest soundtracks of all time yeah and anyone who likes Jim Jarmusch or Vim Vendors or any of those very... Monty Hellman. Monty Hellman, those very, like, Americana films. This is the British answer to that. 
and it's right in step with down by law as much as it is with Paris, Texas and Kings of the Road mm -hmm. uh, with the best soundtrack to boot. And it's been so hard to see for so long. Well, yeah. It never had an official U.S. theatrical release. It never it played a, maybe a handful of festivals in the late 70s, early 80s, but never got a theatrical release, even limited. Never got a home video release in the States. It had a UK DVD, so there were bootlegs and illegal copies that floated around the US. I think I first saw it on like YouTube, maybe when I was in college or something like that. And it was literally just like, oh, here's a thing that has a lot of Bowie music in it. And I've been to parties that like it's just on, like projected on a wall or something what? like that. Because it is just a beautiful, like chill little movie, but it's also heartbreaking and wonderful. And the new restoration looks amazing. And to back up a little bit, Fun City Editions, from my perspective, came out of nowhere. All of a sudden, Amos Poe's Alphabet City is on Blu-ray with art by We Buy Your Kids. Who is doing this? <laughs> and I looked them up and I was like, oh, okay. They've partnered with Vinegar Syndrome and Jonathan is the founder and he is from, you know, repertory theater and worked at, you know, Kino and things like that. And he's incredibly knowledgeable about film and has a very specific eye for what he's planning, for what he's doing with Fun City, with a very specific era and style of filmmaking that he's focusing on that is so underrated and so understated and also fits right in with my tastes of, like, late 70s, early 80s filmmaking in a way that I was like, yeah, I, I want to be involved with these guys. And so I reached out, and I was like, I don't know what you have planned. I don't know what you need. Consider me at your service. I want to help. And... He reached back out for the 1980s L.A. Robert Forrester, Nancy Kwan revenge film, Walking the Edge. Which rules. Which <laughs> rules, because it's one of the few films from that era to depict Jumbo's Clown Room, one of my favorite <laughs> bars in L.A. Um, it's a great, great film. It's really fun. And you can just watch Robert Forrester yeah. in sweatpants for hours. Yeah, but you can also watch Joe Spinell with, like, one dangly earring and, like, a half-buttoned-up, like, a punk the, club. The uh, yeah. drip on that man in that punk club in that movie is insane. Listen, I never thought after watching Maniac I would say these things about Joe Spinell, but... Yeah, he's he's got a he's got a look to him, <laughs> uh, to say the least. And so we collaborated on Walking the Edge, and it was also like, well, you know, outside of doing artwork, I also do packaging, so I can also do booklets and menus and discs and things like that. And so I did all of that for Walking the Edge as well. I restored the original video artwork for the reverse wrap um, and kind of did some, I repainted parts of it to you know, make it fit and restore it as much as I could so that it works for the aspect and did the booklet and things like that. And Jonathan and I hit it off working on that. And I've worked in some capacity or another on every Fun City release after that. So, you know, great artists like Jacob Phillips and We Buy Your Kids uh, have done artwork for Ranch of Deluxe and for the Primetime Panic TV collection recently. Uh, and I've been involved to kind of shepherd those through the packaging stages and things like that. But then Jonathan called me up and was like, hey, we've got radio on. And I was like, you have radio on? <laughs> I, where has this movie been? And I read, it's another title that, like, you know, I'm surprised hasn't been done, you know, 10 years ago by someone like Criterion or something like that. Yeah. It's a huge, huge get for Fun City. I'm so glad they're doing it. He immediately, in the first email about it, was like, I want it, I want the Blu-ray to look like a cassette as much as possible. And so we went back and forth on the phone about, like, well, could it fold out like a cassette? Could it open like that? Would the sleeve come out like a cassette? How are we going to do this? And so the packaging is different from the other ones. They have the more vigorous syndrome slip covers. The slip cover on Radio On is, is you know, it's a slide slip. It's a bit more in keeping with what Cauldron Films is doing for some of their releases, who I've also had the pleasure to work with. They're lovely, lovely gentlemen. And because of the soundtrack that's made with Robert Fripp and mm -hmm. Devo and all of these amazing, amazing groups, we were like, okay, cool. Let's look at the Island Record tapes from the late 70s, early 80s, and the LPs, and look at that branding style. Because the Island Record tapes have a very, very specific look with this kind of pale coral pink and then they would just slap the LP in the middle rather than cropping the LP in any way to fit to the record shape 
And then it was just a white little island insignia at the bottom. And then it would wrap around. And then it was in a yellow plastic case. And so John sent me a bunch of photos of these. And I had a couple island LPs on my shelf because I have a lot of Sparks records. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, of course. Uh, and so... <laughs> Thankfully, living uh, in LA, I was able to go to uh, a record store that I frequent a lot called Jackknife Records that has a massive supply of cassettes. That is like the cassette place to go in LA. Snatched up a couple island cassettes, took them back home, looked at them, looked at the discrepancies. They changed a little bit over the years and then was very quickly like, oh, we can totally do this. Match the pinks, match the yellows, brought in some texturing, had the immense fun of changing up the Fun City logo to kind of match the Island Records logo a little bit. And then from there, it, we pushed it even further because the discussion was like, okay, if the case is going to be like a cassette case, we might as well make the interior sleeve like a cassette. And then the other idea that he had was that a lot of the early um, Kraftwerk records had these foldouts either in the cassette or in the LP of these very stylized, airbrushed, uh, colorized photos of the band that look so hokey and so, like, family portraits and they're so of their time and so endearing. The idea was like, okay, what if we also did that for the interior of Radio On? So Radio On has an incredibly iconic original uh, UK quad and German co-financed by England and Germany, and that's kind of only where it got released, of the dashboard of the car... And the road outside and the plane coming down and the tape deck and then photos of Sting. and It's an amazing, amazing piece. And so obviously we were going to bring that in as if that was the LP cover and then also colorize that image in that kind of hokey-ish craftwork way for the interior. Um, And that was so much fun to do. And so I did all of that work in Los Angeles kind of came together, and that has the most amount of special features of any Fun City release. Yeah, it's To date, it's brand new audio commentaries, tons of new interviews, uh, visual essays, the longest booklet we've ever put together for a release, a lot... In a variety of different writing styles. In a variety of different writing styles. I mean, some essays by the film director, Mm -hmm. and archival pieces, contemporary new pieces that were commissioned. It's a very, very dense book. It is it is a criterion-length level booklet. Yeah. Arrow-length level booklet. And then I came back out to Indiana for a little bit, and while I was here, Jonathan hit me up again and said, oh, we're also going to do a theatrical release mm-hmm. for Radio On because it's never had a theatrical release before. That's insane. So we developed some poster ideas for that, and... Jonathan ended up really liking them and really liked the cassette look. So we ended up running with two posters through the theatrical campaign, which is uh, a little unheard of. Um, <laughs> and so the pink shell Island Records cassette was turned into uh, a poster because, I mean, that fits the cassette framing anyway. Uh, and then we also did a more traditional one focusing on the iconic dashboard image, but tweaking the title treatment a bit kind of in homage to the Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lover song Roadrunner, which is where Radio On takes its title from, because it has that gang vocal that kind of ends yeah. the song of Radio On mm-hmm. again and again and again and again and again. And so to pay homage to that, we have the title kind of fading and repeated down uh, in a way. And that's the that's one of my most proud posters that we that I've done in a long time. And you know to see that you know playing at the Metrograph in New York City and stuff like that, and now be playing here. <laughs> Makes me so happy. I cannot wait for people to finally rediscover this movie. I've been telling people about it, you know, as I've been working on it. I was like, yeah, I'm working on this movie. And it's like, I'm shocked. None of you guys have seen it. Like, here's all the music involved and like, and Sting's in it. And it's got all these people. Yeah. And, and like great, like one scene Produced cameo. by Vim Vendors. Uh, and... I mean, Vim Vendors camera operator, Martin Schaefer, shot the movie. It's stark. It's, it's ethereal. It's kind of liminal. It, it is a liminal film, period. Yeah. Yes. But I love it. I mean, the whole mission statement behind Cicada Cinema is that we were, were always trying to bring films that wouldn't otherwise play in Bloomington. Even a city like Bloomington, Indiana, where it's mm-hmm. just like there's only so much film real estate to go around. Like, it's so vast. And as soon as I saw that and was reviewing it, I just said, like, uh, I'm calling, I'm going to email Jonathan. We're going to play it in town. 
people need to see this and I have no regrets about that at all. And so your artwork contributes a lot to the appeal of that and I'd like thank to you. thank you for it. I have so many other questions I'm going to ask you off microphone, but I'd love for you to come back again someday. I would love to. Uh, it, Even if also, it's just over Zencaster. Yeah, it's Zencaster, whatever. From LA or... But if you ever, but you always have a place to stay in Bloomington, Indiana. Oh, thank long, you. A while I'm here. So was there anything you'd like to plug or hint at or let the audience know about you? Well, I just want to really quickly say that uh, the other great unreleased in America until now release that I got to work on for theatrical and now disc is Ivan Zulueta's Arabato, which is a Spanish queer cult horror film. Pedro Almodovar's favorite horror film. It finally just got a theatrical release from the Saints at Ultra Innocence in a brand new 4K restoration. They made a new 35 millimeter print of the restoration. Oh, wow. And it was just announced for Blu-ray. You can get it from the Vinegar Syndrome website. The new artwork by me and with a new slipcase with some very interesting print techniques used on it that I think will definitely appeal to fans of this podcast. And, you know, there's going to be a lot more new home video releases with some of my artwork on it coming up. So keep an eye out for those. A lot of... Uh, be sure to pick up the Fassbender sets from Arrow. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. <laughs> Volume 3 is coming soon, and it's all new titles that have yet to be released on Blu-ray anywhere in the world. Oh, my God. Uh, including one of his TV melodramas, which is one of my favorite Fassbender movies ever made. Yeah. And which always brings me to tears. So I'm so proud to be giving it its first Blu-ray release and with some new artwork. So... I know Volume One's probably almost sold out now, which is insane. Uh, but definitely be sure to pick those up and then keep a keen eye out on your favorite home video boutique labels because I've got a couple things in the works that I'm really, really itching to talk about, but I can't talk about it yet. But I really want to get to see. <laughs> so uh, if you like depressing movies and you like a lot of '80s American independent cinema, I got a couple coming up that I think you're going to like a lot. Uh, you speak in my language. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here. You are uh, an inspiration to me. You, you make the possibility that someday that Criterion essay for uh, Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days will be a reality for me. Oh, I just hope they're really Strange Days, period. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but thank you so much. Uh, you are a lovely person. I can't wait to keep talking to you off microphone. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for coming to the IU Cinema. Thank you. And God bless the IU Cinema, period. Thank you.